In this episode of Artsy Engineering Radio, product designer Trisha and software engineer Damon discuss why it's important to design and build software with accessibility in mind and the ins and outs of actually doing so. Stick with us. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Artsy Engineering Podcast. I'm Patricia. I'm a black woman. I have long black chunky twists. I can often be found wearing either black or white. I'm a product designer at Artsy on the Find and Explore team, and I work closely with software engineer Damon. In this week's episode, myself and Damon discuss accessibility. Hi, I'm Damon, and I am a software engineer also on the Find and Explore team with Trisha here. I'm a white man, six foot one, shaved head. Uh, I'm wearing white today, all white, which is actually very uncharacteristic of me. I usually wear all black, but, you know, it's a beautiful spring day. Brighten it up a little bit. So how are you doing today, Damon, apart from the bright spring day? Pretty good. Had a, had an early dentist appointment, which is always fun. Nice. How are you? I'm okay. I'm okay. The The weather, um, I imagine, as, as just to be clear, I'm based in London, and Damon, you're based in... I'm sitting here in sunny Philadelphia. Yeah, so we're recording this remotely. So yeah, so the weather like in Philadelphia in London is getting better, which is good. So let's kick it off. Um, we're going to be talking about accessibility. So I want to know if you had to summarize what accessibility means to you, how would you do that? Well, I mean, the operative word here is access, right? You know, I used to work in um, more like the IT side of it, like a arts archival uh, sort of company. And the meme there was that digitization does not equal access, right? Like, so there's more steps you have to do to like putting something online um, to make it accessible. And simply just putting it online is not really adequate. Um, and so for like equitable access, you know, that means certain things like making things easy to find, um, but also making your UI accessible to uh, assistive technologies. Okay, so the key word there is definitely accessible. So can you tell everyone when you first discovered accessibility in engineering? I mean, I came at it from a from a pretty weird angle. You know, my background is in art, and the kind of art that I was interested in is like like sort of minimal and post-minimal works from like the 60s and 70s. This is sort of like what I kind of hold close to my heart. And um, that that type of work it has a lot to do with your sort of like full perceptual facilities when like you're viewing something. So like you bring your sort of whole body into the viewing experience. It's like a very physical and present tense kind of way of like looking at work. And so I'm an artist, right? And so I was interested in making work online and you could kind of see like how I would start to like take notice of sort of assistive technology and so forth is, is, thinking about ways in which we perceive things online in the same way that like we bring our whole body to a sculpture, we bring our whole body to, you know, viewing something online. And when, what are some like different ways of looking at the world, different ways of looking at the world online. And so I sort of started to get interested in like screen readers and, you know, how text is read, how text is perceived, how we come to understand things. And so a very roundabout way of getting there. 
I wasn't like immediately interested in like, oh, like making things accessible for, you know, legal reasons or moral reasons. I was just more interested in like altered perceptual states. That's interesting that you say you come across, uh, you came across it through your art. Have you applied anything that you've learned through using screen readers for your own artwork? Just out of wonder. Yeah, I've made a lot of stuff. You know, I've made, uh, I've like republished books with every word uh, misspelled in a very particular way that sort of supposedly mimics the way that dyslexia functions. And so it's a very like, for for you as like a, a, a non-disabled person to read it, you have like a very like different experience of reading a book. I've also done a lot of work with like color perception and a lot of things with orientation and audio compasses and stuff like that. So, Yeah. Okay, so you've done a lot of a, a lot of accessible. You've done some works that have the relationship with accessibility. So I'm interested in talking a little bit more about your past experiences with creating accessible products. Some of the challenges and um, the motivations you have. I mean, you know, I, I previously worked at a, um, a sort of larger luxury e-commerce website, and. The motivation there, I think, was strictly, you know, from a business perspective. I mean, this is this is the way it tends to be, um, you know, in most companies. It's 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 driven by like a business perspective rather than like necessarily a moral one or or a legal one. You know, there it was like, well, okay, like a, a substantial portion of our audience, you know, needs to be able to access this this website, and so making the website as accessible to to the widest audiences, you know, that's a business imperative. So. In that case, it was pretty clear cut. I mean, you know, we had certain guidelines that we were given and like told to meet them. And it was pretty straightforward because we were we were dealing with a greenfield project, a full ground up rewrite from, you know, from nothing for the front end. And so when you approach something from like from the very beginning, it's way it's much easier than like trying to retrofit something that's existing, which is sort of sort of the case that we have at Artsy right now. It's much more challenging because we're dealing with a much older code base. And there's sort of layers to how difficult certain aspects of that are. But obviously, like when you're starting from scratch, if you think about it from the very beginning, it's it's actually very easy, I think, to reach a pretty reasonable level of compliance with like WCAG. You used an acronym there, which was... WCAG. WCAG. Which is uh, the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines. Those are a set of gu- guidelines for like authoring content, and there's three levels to them: um, A, AA, and AAA. And AAA is typically reserved for like government websites, and it's can be a little trickier to to reach. And AA is what most businesses strive to hit. Although there, uh, as far as I know, there's no legal requirement for businesses to comply with those guidelines specifically, which is interesting. Yeah, most um, in my experience. Uh, I'm not sure what it's like in the, I'm not sure about the laws in the US, but definitely in the UK, government websites at least have to comply with AA. Yeah. I can imagine it's probably the same in the US. But yeah, I mean, you're right. No, no, no actual website has to be fully accessibility compliant. We do have the ADA here, which is the Americans with Disabilities Act. And supposedly that does apply to websites. There was a famous case with like Domino's Pizza. Yeah. But like, you know, the specifics of that are a little unclear. Like it's like your website has to be or your app has to be accessible. You know, that doesn't necessarily mean you have to comply with a specific set of guidelines. 
So that's the ch- that's some of the challenges, right? There's still a lot of grey areas in what is a fully accessible compliance site. Is it double A or is it triple A or is A A enough? So I want to talk a little bit more about your collaboration with designers. Any good or bad examples? Given that I'm a designer, it would be interesting to hear from your perspective, your past collaborations with designers? I mean, obviously everything like is always going to start with the designers, you know, engineers can only do so much. Like if the, if the, if you're trying to build something to like a design spec where the, the fonts are too small or the color contrast is too low, like, you know, there's not a lot we can do about that other than complain. Mm. <laughs> Looking at the guidelines for colors in particular is a really interesting thing. I, you know, previously in my career, I built a website where a lot of information was conveyed with color. And this obviously is a huge problem because of, you know, color blindness and so forth. And, and so like, we, you know, things, things regarding like privacy levels were like, oh, red or whatever. You know, that was something that obviously had to change. And, but, you know, that's, that's something that, that starts with design and can be very obvious once you're made aware of the issues. Yeah. It's interesting you're talking about color. Obviously, our platform is based on artworks and artworks is, you know, the the foundations of artworks is is mainly through colour and the use of colour. So it's interesting to hear that an engineer is so passionate about creating an accessible website for an art platform. Um, what, What gets you excited about this, considering these nuances? Well, like, you know, first of all, like art doesn't, isn't necessarily like purely a visual thing, right? Like there's many kinds of art and obviously, you know, when you're dealing with a website, obviously a lot of, you know, images and so forth, like things are going to be visual, but a lot of the work on our platform is, you know, sound or deals with language. So there's that. And then there's also like, I don't know, I have a lot of, I have a few friends that are disabled artists, like that have motor, you know, neuromuscular disabilities and you know, still paint. And that's still, it's still part of like making an accessible website. You know, a big push that we've been making at Artsy is to make the website accessible via keyboard. And that's, you know, not everybody can use a pointing device or a touch device. And so, you know, it doesn't have to be just a visual impairment, uh, you know, that we're talking about here, but there are famous art collectors who have been partially blind. (laughs) This is not, uh, this is not unheard of. Yeah. There's a uh, an interesting anecdote about a famous art collector who accidentally punched a hole in a 130 million dollar Picasso painting. So <laughs> this, this happens. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a good call out that art isn't just visual. You're right. The foundations mainly aren't. There is this common perception that the foundations are are through color. But you're right. It does come in sound. It comes in textures, sculptures. You know. It comes in all sorts of forms. So you've touched on some things that you've explored at Artsy in terms of making the platform more accessible, such as the keyboards, um, making um, focus states more easier, so making the site easier to navigate. As an engineer, what do you think an interesting thing would be to understand what you think is the most important thing that you know any engineer out there should consider when they're building an accessible product? Is it contrast, as you touched on earlier? Is it the alt text where they're able to navigate around the site easily? 
or have an understanding of what what is there on the screen. So for blind people, is it important that they they have an understanding of what the artwork is through descriptive text? Or is it the focus state where they're able to to navigate around the site easier? What do you think is the most important? You know, there's no one thing that's the most important necessarily. Some things are harder than others, of course, to, to do. I mean, you know, one of the big problems that we have is, you know, we have we have millions of artworks to have our partners or for us to do descriptive text for all of the images would be, you know, it's a pretty big deal. Um, I mean, we've, we've started to explore maybe possibly, you know, doing like computer vision descriptions or, you know, we've looked into that a little bit and I think that's something we'll look into more in the future. But as far as like, and, and another engineer trying to understand what's going on or what's more important. I mean, I think the, the, the only thing that uh, that's made me sort of realize is to, you know, just turn on these tools and look at things and try to try to navigate your website using only a keyboard or using only a screenwriter. What engineers tend to do is use these sort of like automated tools that give you checklists, right? And you check off all the boxes and you, you, you know, you, you score all the points and, and you're like, okay, well, I did, I did it. And that can leave, you know, glaring issues that aren't automatable, that aren't, that can't be solved by like, you know, just like pointing a tool at your site to see what's wrong with it. You have to like sort of try to use it. That's very, it's a very eye-opening experience, I think. Um, I just, you know, as an engineer, I just keep the accessibility menu into my, um, you know, my OSX uh, top bar there. And I just turn it on. Whenever I'm done with something, I'll just turn it on and turn on the screen reader and just like double check my work to see what's going on. And, it's, you know, every time I see something new and or something I've missed and uh, it doesn't take long. Yeah. It's a very easy thing to do. I guess you'd also give that that similar advice to designers as well. You know, put yourself in the shoes. Oh, yeah. Based on your experience with working with designers, what do you think is key for them to think of? You know, if they're starting out in accessibility, they want to start somewhere. What What do you think is, from an engineer point of view, that they should focus on? Frequently, what happens with design is it tends to be you're, you're dealing with a static medium when you're designing. Like, it, I mean, some people use, you know, more dynamic tools for mocking up things and, and creating interface states. But I think that tends to not be the case, you know, at least in my experience. And so it's, it's difficult for designers to, to sort of like feel what the work is like without maybe a prototyping step, right? Where, you're, where you really see like, what are all the states that this thing can be in? It doesn't have to be like just necessarily thinking about, oh, how is a screen reader going to, to use this? There's, there's a lot of things that happen even when just using a pointing device, different affordances and so forth that maybe be, they're overlooked. And so, you know, either like a prototyping step or a more like dynamic medium for doing design, I think can, can go a really long way in improving like the fidelity of like uh, your interfaces and, and, you know, how responsive they feel, how, they, how other assistive technologies work with them. It's, it's really difficult, I think, to design just, you know, from a, coming from a static perspective. Mm. Just to have stills is not enough. So, yeah. I mean, how do you typically think about how, like, I don't know, how do you, how do you, because I know you tend to use a static medium, right? Is that, is that an accurate assessment? Yeah, I use a, I use both a static medium and I, I also try and, and uh, get the work prototyped as well. And I think for me, it's key to get the work prototyped and tested right. as well whether it's internal, because there's stuff that I do miss when I build, you know, like um, feedback states. That's a, mm -hmm. that's, a, that's a big one that I 
that sometimes I miss when I'm designing. So that's why it's important for me to to prototype it, test it and see like, is there is there a feedback state here missing? Does it need a feedback state? Sometimes you can you can kind of overkill with feedback states. So it's important to get the the balance of feedback states right. I think some of the the important things for me that a designer has to know, and I think it's often overlooked, is how they organize their files for build. And I think for me, historically, when I've delivered specifications for engineers, I've ordered them in a way where how how I expect the the focus Mm -hmm. state to go. So I think this is this is this is a, a hygiene thing, but I think it's also important because it, it kind of helps the engineer, you know, be able to think, okay, if they're going to navigate this page, what's the expectation from an experience point of view of where they would, if they tab through with their focus state, what's the expectation for the user to navigate through the site? So I think little little details like that is quite quite helpful. It goes beyond, I think, the contrast. I mean, the contrast is. Is something that I think should be incorporated within your design system in the first place. And that's something that should be, you shouldn't have to worry about because it's already inherently built within your design system. But I think if you go in a step further to, if you're collaborating with engineers, really creating your layout in a way that they, that the engineer can see through the layers, what the expectation of the, the tabbing and the focus states are. Mm-hmm. I mean, you mentioned, you mentioned design systems, right? And that's not something that not everybody has. And I, I, you know, those are, I think design systems are a really interesting lever to pull in terms of like getting accessibility baked in at like a much lower level. Like all of your, if all of your parts uh, and pieces are accessible, then it, you have a much better chance of, you know, having a product that's as a whole accessible when you put them all together. And as well, like, just like in terms of like, reducing like cognitive friction, like making sure all of like things, everything's consistent and works in sort of like a way that you uh, expect. Yeah. You know, that's, I think that's frequently, you know, people think about design systems only in, only in terms of like maybe making their own lives. I don't know what, what is it's, it's funny because it is, it is something that's really caught on in the past few years. And I think the benefits of them are so clear on so many levels, but the accessibility level is something that I don't think it's talked about as much. Mm, I I agree. You know, yeah. As one of one of the one of the great selling points of a design system, but yeah, yeah. But it's often looked at with design systems of like, is it? It's it's a, it's part of the product. We need it because it will be scalable. It will empower teams to work faster. But there's also the the question of accessibility as a feature within the design system. I think that that often gets overlooked and most places that do it well embed it within their design principles, embed accessibility as part of their design principles. And it's always good when you find a non-government site that has actually thought about including accessibility within their design system preferences. So, so why is it that it's, I mean, I don't know, I can't help but think about, you know, what's, what's the motivating factor here for all of this? Like, What's like? Does capitalism really uh, is really the 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 thing that is that should, that rears its head? You know, once again, like mm. what's the the thing that you know? I'm not going to do it unless unless there's like a business reason to do it. I'm not going to do it unless there's like a legal threat. Yeah, and I, I think it's a shame to look at it that way. I think ultimately, it's a it's terrible. It's a it's it's kind of a dark thing to say, but 
ultimately each and every one of us are going to have some sort of access needs, whether it's temporarily or whether it's something that's going to be pretty permanent. So I'm a parent and I have a, a daughter and I'm about to have another another daughter and for for temporarily I'm I'm going to be I'm going to be temporarily disabled because I'm ultimately just going to be able to to work with mm-hmm. one hand so navigating on devices such as my phone and the computer or even working the uh, remote control for a TV is going to be a completely different experience for mm. quite a long period of time and I think that's that's what people don't 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 think about is that you know i i could be in the situation temporarily where i need to navigate um devices you know seamlessly or you know my i'm going to lose my hand or something or i i may have an operation or laser eye treatment and i may have one eye that's 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 not working and i think that's what that's what people forget that we are all at some point no matter what going to be affected by some sort of access needs. And I think that should be the motivation as opposed to, can we get more people onto our site? It should be that, you know, one day, yeah. as much as I love this product, I'm going to want to go on this site and I'm going to want to make a purchase and I'm going to find it difficult. Or, you know, you get to that particular age where you find yourself increasing the tech size of your mobile phone. Oh, I'm already and- there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That happens quicker quicker than you expect, right? I make I make great use of the uh OSX's Zoom feature. Yeah. Um but yeah, apparently apparently at least in the US, 19% of the population, one in five people have significant functional difficulties. Mm. Did not know that actually. Yeah. Yeah. Um that's the ADA data. Yeah. So uh, there's lots of data out there, but there's also that that key important thing that it may happen temporarily or it may happen permanently, but it, it, you are going to end up in a situation where you, you need help with access needs. And, and I think that's, that's my primary motivation for um, shouting about accessibility and, and making sure that everybody understands why it's important. Yeah, I like that. Not just from a business perspective, you know, but also from, from a human perspective. Yeah, looking out for your future self. Yeah, yeah. It's not just the right thing to do. It's also like you know, sit, sit with your mother to have a, have a day where you sit next to your, your, your mum or your dad and see how they navigate their mobile phone. They may surprise you that they've, they've found ways of little tricks of using it, or they may surprise you that they don't have any issues at all because that particular brand has figured out a way of making sure that things are really, really accessible. That's where you learn and you think, okay, I can incorporate that interaction into my work because it works well for everyone. I think children are also good, good, good ways of seeing what's working and what's not working because they, they, they use devices very intuitively. I watch my daughter a lot and she's taught me a lot about, a lot about how the mobile phone works. Um, particularly- Have you ever had your daughter try using any of uh, your artsy uh, work? No, no, I don't think that would be exciting enough for her. Uh, no, I haven't actually had her. I've had my mother. I, I use my mother as a, a good, mm-hmm. a good baseline into, into if, if I want to do, um, introduce an interaction and I need to validate whether that interaction is something that is understood by all, 
I will go to my mother, my brother, and I'll be like, well, how do you, how do you delete messages on your iPhone? Can you just show me? And, you know, if they swipe left, then I know, okay, so they get this interaction. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I'll, I'll test it with a few people. So at the moment, speaking of Artsy, it'll be interesting to know what you're doing to make the product more accessible and uh, what what challenges you've had. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's worth noting we've got a long way to go. Um, it is by no means like an exemplary site. I mean, you know, we've we've come a long way though. Um, when I did initially rejoin Artsy in it was just last year actually, there was like you know something as simple as there was no outlines on on anything when you're tapping around. And it's interesting because frequently, like we've actually gotten bug reports from people when there was outlines, you know, that now that there are outlines in certain certain parts of the site where they think it's actually a, a defect. But um, one of the things, one of the first things we did was um, there's, a, there's a new standard coming out. It was recently accepted into um, the spec for CSS, which is a pseudo software called Focus Visible. And so typically, you know, when you when you click on something, you know, it will trigger the focus state of a given object, right? And so you get the, you know, by default, you've got that like blue focus ring. So that's something that designers tend to not like. And one of the one of the first things I that, you know, that always happens is star selector and outline zero, turn it off on everything, which, you know, you don't you do not want to do that. But if this is your company, and that's happened to you, a great thing to do is um, there's a polyfill for the pseudo selector focus visible, and focus visible is a focus state that only is enacted when you're using a keyboard to uh, navigate. So mouse clicks won't trigger it, which actually makes quite a bit of sense if you think about it. And so you still get focus rings, but only when you're tapping around on your keyboard. And so that was one of the first things we did was turn turn that on. You know that gets you pretty far. That that's that's a great thing to do. And then, you know, recently we've been rebuilding the the design system. And so I've had the opportunity to touch all of our like lower level components and making sure that they comply with, you know, the guidelines that WAI ARIA put out. And so, you know, recently we made all of our filters uh, keyboard accessible, which they weren't previously. And that's, you know, that's a big, that's a big part of the site being able to go and find and filter and search for art. And so making those keyboard accessible was, was, you know, a good thing to do and a big deal. Yeah, certainly, because actually navigating filters in general, even if you don't have access needs, can, it can, some, some products can make them really more complicated than they, they need to be. Oh, yeah, it's a, it's a super complicated piece of UI. You know, I think, I think we struck a good balance and, and it's pretty, it's pretty easy to find stuff. And it's actually pretty easy to, um, you know, build up a complex filter state on your keyboard now. And do you have um, more plans for the future for the Artsy product? As, as you mentioned, it's not, it's not in perfect shape from an accessibility point of view, but you're, there's an organization yeah. where we're on our journey to improve it. What other key things would you like to be included within the product? Yeah, I mean, a new thing that I've started to look at is actually just tab stop order. We've got like, you know, masonry grids, which are currently what happens is when you when you tab around on them, it goes it goes like sort of down a column, then up to the next column and then down and then up to the next. And we've got a lot of like extraneous tab stops in there. And so like just just trying to make a more intuitive uh, tab experience it's one of one of the next things i'm going to start looking at yeah i mean you know it's one of those things if you're thinking about it from the start it's not difficult if you're trying to retrofit it 
it starts to get a little complicated. And so in our case, it is, it is a little trickier than it has to be, but we, we will prevail. Yeah. Yeah. It will, it will get there. And yeah, I mean, I can imagine also the results on the, on the masery, which we, we call it the artwork grid and you can get so many results of artworks, right? And can you imagine having to tap through hundreds and hundreds of pieces of artworks and it keeps jumping up and down? It must be something that, that needs a, a challenge that's going to be interesting to fix. So uh, in, the, in the future, you know, if you had to give advice to engineers or designers starting, starting out, how can, how can they go about learning how to build accessible products? How, how did you go about learning? Because I can imagine it's not something that is, it definitely wasn't for me as a designer, something that I learned academically was something that I learned on the job through, through pairing with engineers and working with other designers that had experiences with it and skimming through government blog site, blogs and right. reads. How, how, do you, how do you think engineers and other designers can go about outside of what I've said? You know, I mean, for me, it just started like, I just wanted to build something correctly. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, you know, some, one of the things that happens is like, you know, an engineer will just like, you know, I need to make like a, like a dropdown or something. And so I install some UI library that implements a dropdown and I kind of trust that they say, oh yeah, and it's, it's accessible and it complies with, you know, whatever. Uh, my like sort of craftsperson you know, mindset makes me, you know, I don't really necessarily want to do that. I want to like build it and look at the specs and build it the right way, uh, you know, and know that it's correct. Yeah. And typically what I'll do is I'll just, you know, just Google WCAG dropdown. Usually there's, you know, an example that you can build from, you know, and it implements like, you know, you could do a table of like, okay, these are, these are the keyboard interactions you have to have. These are the the things you have to do. And the nice thing that happens is all of a sudden your UI feels better. It looks better. It's like, it's just better. And you build a better product. It's very much worth the doing. You know, there's just so many subtle things that I think when you're using a piece of UI that you don't necessarily realize they're there until you build them. And then, and then you're like, all of a sudden, oh, this feels like a native control all of a sudden. This feels better. And it's like, you didn't realize it was even there to begin with. And so that's, that's always really interesting me, to me that yeah. like these invisible things that are there, but it's just like, you know, just like knowing that things are built correctly, I think is, it makes me happy as an engineer. And I think, I think most, you know, a lot of engineers get that, yeah. you know, that sense of pride of like, you know, building something the right way. And yeah, there's a lot of invisible things that you overlook if you're just kind of freestyling it. Yeah. I think that's, 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 that's good advice for engineers. And that's definitely a, a motivational bit of advice for both engineers and designers is, you know, there are invisible things that you need to design for that is actually quite rewarding. Random question to finish off. I want to talk about what in the, in the space of the real world or within the online world, do you think what, what product or what, what object or what, you know, what piece of work or anything that you've seen that you think, oh my goodness, this is like, really solving access needs really, really well. And, you know, if this could be applied, I don't know, online or in this particular space, it would be amazing. You know, that wow, that piece of wow that you've, you've come across in your life. So I can give you an example. For me, 
I didn't know for a long time about this. And in the UK, they have a little secret button underneath the when you go to cross the road. And that secret button basically helps, empowers people who are blind to be able to get to the edge of the, the, the curb and they turn on the button and the button basically will increase the volume of the, of the noise for the crossing. I've had so many moments where I've crossed the street with my daughter now that I now after I discovered this button and she's she's always tried to point out this button to me and I've always <laughs> been like hurry up cross the road cross the road it wasn't until somebody pointed it out to me that there is this actual secret button where they can increase the volume and it will it will empower them to cross without feeling like okay well am I gonna get hit by a car wait your daughter only saw it because she's shorter exactly <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. There's so many, so many times that she tried to point out this button to me, you know, because, you know, they like to hit the button so they can cross the road. But she's had so many situations where she's tried to tell me about this secret button and I've ignored her because I've been in a rush. And then somebody actually, um, a previous place I worked, told me about the secret button and I was like, wow, that is actually a pretty neat way of solving access needs, you know. Anything like that that you've come across that you think, wow, that's really, that's, that's, solving a good access yeah yeah no first of all i love that you know your daughter you know obviously children are small and so they have this like completely different way of looking at the world that's just you know it's something as so simple as like being half your height like i love that that you know you can notice new things i mean i don't know i've, I've uh apparently there's like a, a a lot of different sonar technology being developed for blind navigation which i think is fascinating and so like different, you know, cause, cause obviously like cell phones and cameras have like, everything's gotten a lot faster and smaller. And so like, it starts to become practical to like do real time audio, like sonar. I mean, it's just crazy to me. Uh, so that's really exciting. I also was like, I was kind of fascinated with the idea of blind sailing for a while. There's sort of a, 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 a subculture of sailors who are blind, I guess. And um, there's a lot of audio technologies that go along with that, that, that make, sailing possible that's super interesting i'm not a sailor but i just i guess i just find that idea very beautiful so um, how does this work are they do they navigate through the seas using audio well like yeah like audible buoys um wow i've never yeah i've never seen it seen it and just know it's a possibility and i think that's great yeah so there yeah there's a lot of like audio assistance stuff that i think is is particularly interesting you know, obviously I said I was playing around a lot with like audio compasses and stuff, you know, in my artistic practice. And so, you know, the sonification of the environment, it's a cool idea. Yeah, I can imagine. I've also seen some, some, some demos, some tech demos of like translating it to, into touch. So like, you know, sort of presenting a camera's view in a, um, you know, a touch sensitive, like on your palm. And so like, a, you know, a similar kind of like sense replacement navigation technology. Really interesting. Yeah, there's some some exciting things. Exciting things are coming out in terms of sensory. You know, it, I think the last few years, audio has been quite big, but it's nice to see that the sense of touch is becoming something that's quite important. These are the knock-on effects of like cell phones getting better. <laughs> like yeah. everything, you know, you know, it, it raises all the, the other boats in the sea. So I think that's great. Yeah, who would have thought that we'd be using touch devices as opposed to clicking on loads of buttons to send a text no. message <laughs> and, and voice interfaces all the time. Like I remember, I remember reading uh, like a Ray Kurzweil, you know, Ray Kurzweil, he's like a futurist 
believes in the uh, technological singularity. No, I haven't heard of this guy. He's a really interesting character. He um, makes a lot of predictions about the future. And I remember reading his book in like 2005 that we'd all be using voice interfaces in like 2015. And I was like, no way. Like that's so clunky. No. And he was dead on. Here we are using everybody uses voice interfaces all the time. Yeah. Really interesting. It's, it's, it's definitely, I think, going to be uh, the default way for the generation coming up because, you know, it's, it's impossible to talk to my daughter on the phone just through audio. It has to be a video call. Does she get bored? She, yeah, she'll just walk off and then you'll just end up screaming, <laughs> Amelia, <laughs> um, down the phone. But yeah, but yeah, it has to definitely be video and conversations I've noticed with young children are done through emojis and they seem to get each other they seem to understand what they're saying for imagery which i think is is from an access point of view is very interesting it's no longer about just you know words and written words it's about symbols as well which is which i guess is going to close the gap for for different languages as well which would be interesting this has been really nice talking to you. Thank you. I've learned so much. I'm sure everybody else that's been listening has learned so much. Always a pleasure to talk to you, Trisha. Thanks for listening to another episode of Artsy Engineering Radio. This episode was recorded by Trisha Ofuono, who you can find on Twitter as at a visual tinker and by Damon Z. It was produced by Asia Simpson and our theme music is by Eve Essex, who you can find on all major streaming platforms. Follow us on Twitter at Artsy Open Source, and you can find the Artsy Engineering blog at artsy.github.io. See you next time.